the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Scott Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to another week of The Truth Perspective. Sorry about that. We had to use the old audio this week. But um, welcome. It is Saturday, December 20th. And the last week has been crazy. We're going to be talking about some of the things that have happened over the past eight days or so and get into a whole lot of other areas-related subjects. Um, today, in the studio, we have Carolyn. Hi. Ilan. Hello. William. Good afternoon. And I am your host, as usual, Harrison Cayley, and we are all editors at SOT, so we will be talking about some of the things that we've been looking at in this past week. Like I said, it's been crazy. Um, one of the things that we've noticed over the past week is there seems to have been a whole string of kind of mass murders um, going on all over the planet. Um, just to give a few of the latest, um, on Friday, uh, December 19th, in North Queensland, Australia, um, eight children were murdered um, from ages of five months to 15 years old, found stabbed to death in a house. And at the house, um, a woman was found, an injured woman. And at first it was unclear who this woman was, if she was related to the to the children. And it turns out, right, guys, it, it was actually her mom. It was. It was mm. the mother of, of those four children, all eight of them. It was mind-boggling. And, and what made it even more tragic was the fact that the neighborhood where this house was, nearly everyone in that neighborhood is related in one way or another. So it's it's a tragedy that is just more than, than a single family. Yeah, just a, a tragedy that something like that would happen. And like, the, I don't think there have been any details released. Not so far. Not so far, just that she is talking to the police. They took her off to the hospital. She was medicated for a while and then it's just been radio silence. Okay, looks like we're back. Can you guys hear us now? Is anybody out there? Okay, as usual. Okay, you guys can hear us. Great. In that case, since you guys missed it, let's let's try playing our intro music. <laughs> In five. So it looks like our intro music is not working. <laughs> So, okay, let's start out again. <laughs> All right. So, uh, welcome. It is Saturday, December 20th, and uh, this is another episode of The Truth Perspective on the SOT Radio Network. Um, so, we are going to be talking about some of the things that have been happening over the past week, because it has been a crazy week um, in terms of just stuff going on all over the planet. Um, we have in the studio today... Um, Carolyn. Hello. We have Ilan. Hey there. And William. Good afternoon. And I am your host, Harrison Cayley. So this past week, um, it seems like there's been a whole um, kind of 
ramp up of just disasters going on across the planet. And the type of disasters are mass murders in various different contexts and countries. Um, first of all, most recently on December 19th, on Friday, in North Queensland, Australia, um, there were eight children found murdered, stabbed to death. They were they ranged in age from five months to 15 years old. Um, they were found stabbed in their house. And at the scene, there was a woman found who appeared injured. And the first reports, they were not clear. Um, police didn't know who this woman was, couldn't confirm if she was any relation to the um, to the children. But now it turns out that it was actually her mother. Is that right? Sarah? Yes. Yeah. The mother of this family appears to be the one responsible. Um, they have not released much more information than this one little fact that they had taken her to hospital. She had been medicated for a while. She was awake. She was, quote, talking to the police, unquote, and nothing beyond that has been publicized. So it's a huge mystery. What makes this even more tragic is the, the neighborhood where this happened. This is not just a single family, but this family was related to just about all of the neighbors. And so one might wonder what was going on in this woman's head when she was so, you know, ensconced in a place where many, many relations were, where they presumably would have talked talk to each other and would have noticed if there was anything amiss with this woman. She was described as a loving mother who fiercely looked after her children. And to have such a, a what would appear to be a, a completely unthinkable action on her part, you know, begs begs a lot of questions. Yeah, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see um, what else comes to this, what the, what the motive was, or if it was mental illness. That's the only thing I can think of for something like oh, this. Absolutely. Um, but we just had a, a reader uh, chat in the chat room point out um, another story. Um, seven violent running in five weeks. This is in New Zealand. Um, check out those as well. Um, but for this week, um, just three days before, um, the, the murders in North Queensland, um, there was the big, um, what do you call it, like a, a terrorist attack um, at the at a school in the Peshawar in Peshawar in Pakistan. Now, um, a group of, I think they're saying maybe around six um, Taliban militants basically took over this school, uh, ended up killing at least 141 people at this school, students and and teachers, I believe. That was the, la the latest count, and over 120 others injured. Um, it was a military-run school. Um, the, the Taliban guys came dressed in military, um, Pakistani military um, uniforms. Um, so this, this is one of the biggest um, like terror attacks in Pakistan mm -hmm. recently. And um, do you guys have any other... Um, yeah. Well, you know, this uh, this attack in Pakistan recently reminded me uh, a great deal of the attack in Beslan, uh, North Ossetia, in uh, September of 2004. And that was one of the most horrific terror attacks that uh, Russia had ever experienced. Um, over uh, 300 people were killed, 186 of them children. Um, this is attributed to uh, Chechen terrorists. And uh, it's interesting, uh, Michael Kosodovsky made some interesting connections after 9-11 uh, uh, between these um, 
Chechens and, and the intelligence agencies uh, and the relations around the world. Um, apparently, the person who was responsible uh, for this uh, horrific attack on the school um, was Chechen warlord Shamil Basayev, uh, who was actually trained and indoctrinated by the CIA uh, in, in CIA-sponsored camps in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and according to a Yosef Badansky, who was no less the director of U.S. Congress's Task Force on Terrorism and Unconventional War, uh, the war in Chechnya had been planned during a secret summit, Hezbollah, not to be confused with Hezbollah, International. And this was held in 1996 in Mogadishu, Somalia. <laughs> so... Um, Apparently, there were high-ranking uh, members of um, Pakistani intelligence there, and um, there are direct links between Pakistan's ISI uh, with the Chechen um, independence fighters, if you will. No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, there's another uh, kind of interesting thing that you could um, conceive of this as a message being sent from a very high level. Um, in following the tweets, I'm a big Twitter fan, you find the best stuff on there and the worst. But um, the, a few of the tweets were complaining that the government should have known that this was going to be a high-level target, given that this was a school run by the Pakistani army for the benefit of its officers' children. Um, the thing that I saw as a tweet is apparently when these monsters walked in the door, Wearing a Pakistani uniform, of course, everybody would have been, you know, fine. Day. We've seen these people. Uh, they asked how many children's fathers, mothers, maybe even, were serving in the army. And, of course, these innocent little kids put all their arms up, and those were the ones who were shot first. I know. It was just hideous. Hideous. But the fact that this was able to happen, that this, this soft target was left, so undefended being so close to the actual border where there is conflict and the just the whole you know camouflage nature of it the the you know, subterfuge that that went into pulling this off a message was being sent to somebody mm-hmm. well the um there's an article on RT probably on on other mainstream sources as well as well but it looks like um the Pakistani authorities are looking into a person that may be involved. Um, it's actually a British doctor. Now, the um, this doctor. Okay, I'll give the the story about him is pretty outrageous. So I'll just tell you about this guy's history. So this guy, um, what's his name here? Um, it doesn't look. I've got his name, but okay, he's a British doctor. He allegedly tried to join ISIS. He uh, he wanted to fight for ISIS in Syria, and he was somehow stopped. Um, what happened is he the he was basically oh, he so he wanted to fight for ISIS, but he couldn't. He was arrested in 2013 um, and due for trial in May. But before his trial, he managed to flee the UK where he was then arrested in Croatia. From Croatia, he was then deported to Pakistan, where he managed to quickly rise through the ranks of the Taliban. So keep in mind, okay, so so it was earlier this... So over the course of this year, he managed to rise through the ranks of the Taliban. Um, you know, he 
he managed to, to flee the, you know, the long arm of British justice, get to Taliban, rise through the ranks, and um, they're looking, the, they're investigating this guy as being kind of like the ringleader of this attack on the school. And in the UK, he had ties with a notorious, quote, radical UK cleric, um, Anjem Chudari. And this guy turns up every once in a while in the news. He he knew the guy. Um, there was that guy that had killed the, the man on the street with a knife. And he attacked a, like a royal guard? Yeah. Okay. And so that guy actually knew Chudari. They knew each other. And so Chudari was actually interviewed about him and said, oh, yeah, I know this guy. This is what his name was. And and blah blah blah. Now that um, Elon, you brought up the the just the resemblance to Bezlan. Um, maybe a little a little bit later in the show, we'll get into another just another kind of parallel between this story and the types of things that go on with other terror attacks like Bezlan. Um, and so links to the Chechens and Turkey and this whole network of. Um, you know, what used to just be called Al-Qaeda, but is actually, you know, a whole group of and little groups and splinter groups and all these Muslim terrorists. But we'll get into that a bit later in the show. Um, but going back to our timeline, uh, that was on Tuesday. The day before, in Philadelphia, there was an Iraq vet uh, named Bradley Stone, um, who was described as odd by people that knew him. No surprise. Um, killed six people in the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, those six people included his ex-wife and his ex-wife's family, uh, her mother, grandmother, sister, brother-in-law, niece, and I believe one other man. I couldn't find out the relation of this man to anyone else. And um, so the police were searching for him, ended up finding him dead in the woods near his home with what appeared to be self-inflicted wounds. Now, you know, there's not necessarily anything more to the story than is presented in the media. There doesn't always have to be, but um, um, at the very least, um, we see violence coming like this from vets, like, all the time. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a huge issue for troops returning from Iraq, Afghanistan, various other countries on the planet. Um, so who knows if there's more to the story or not, but placed you know, with the Queensland, the Peshawar, and then a couple of other ones that came up. That's just why I personally see this week as being crazy in general. Um, because three days before that, on the Friday the 12th, there was a, a shooting near a school in Portland, Oregon, um, took place near the courthouse. Uh, three students were shot. Um, you know, just another example of these, you know, mass murders that seem to be happening with some regularity, regularity across the planet. And then the the other big one of the past week, again on Monday, so this is the same day as the, the Iraq vet, ex-wife and her family, um, the so-called Sydney, Sydney siege um, involving Man Haron Monis, a.k.a. Mantegi Burujerdi. You guys want to fill me in on the details of this? Well, this uh, this guy who's got a really interesting background, which I hope we can get a little bit into, burst into this cafe and he had pledged his allegiance to ISIS and he was going to you know, kill the infidels. And just the ineptness of it was, was, if it wasn't so tragic, would have been comical. 
um, there's an excellent article on signs called They Hate Us for Our Chocolate because this was a coffee shop. This wasn't even like a high-value target, although it was across from, well, it was across from an important government building, right? Well, there was all kinds of stuff in the, in the, re, in the area, area because it was like the central business district of yeah, but Sydney. The but, coffee shop. I know. Not. <laughs> and, um, I mean, everything from, you know, nobody of, of value there. I mean, usually when you're going to do this, you at least want to have one person who's worth something that you can negotiate with. He, uh, if I recall, had the wrong flag. So yeah. one of his demands was he needed a proper ISIS flag because he had somebody else's flag. Yeah, I think it was and, a flag for one of the, just one of the random groups in Syria. Yeah, it's black. It's got Arabic writing. Must yeah. be right. And then somebody let him know that, uh, no, dude, really. So. Well, but just on that point, uh, we were talking about it earlier yeah. today and or was it yesterday? And the whole issue of the flag, like, do we even really know that that's what happened? I mean, did he, was that in a conversation that he had with the police? Um, I know it was one of his demands, that, and he wanted to talk to, to Abbott. But what are, but how do, what I'm asking is, how do we know what his demands really were? That's true. Who Who is the person that says this is what his demands are? Where did they get their information? Mm-hmm. It, like, with the whole thing with the flag, I mean, it could have, it could have, been that he didn't necessarily even want the ISIS flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could have been a narrative that was created after the fact in order to link this with ISIS. Because, oh, true enough. True enough. Uh, and we don't even know <clears throat> anything about his other demands. Mm-hmm. What was the whole purpose of him doing this operation? Uh, it seems to be very unclear, well, except I... that we know Australia was thinking about increasing some of its uh, surveillance on people and things, mm-hmm. and they were just kind of mulling around with it, and maybe this was uh, the catalyst that they needed in order to push those measures through. Definitely, and that seems definitely part of it. Um, he did want to talk to Tony Abbott, um, mm-hmm. but we never found out about what. They never told that. Um, and the guy has an incredibly sordid history. I oh, mean, my gosh, yes. What, what did he uh, try to attempt to kill his first wife or, or something? Oh, he's got a rap sheet like twenty years worth. He was he was an attempted murder on his wife, and he was still walking around. And he had been in and out of different splinter groups. He was he was a quote self styled cleric, but he kept changing affiliations. Um, I don't have a list of them all. Iran or wanted to extradite him to face charges in that country. And yeah, well, Iran? well, the, at the beginning he left Iran, right. claiming um, that his that his family was in danger because he ha- he knew secrets about like uh you know security secrets for the, for the government and he had information and so he went to Australia and Australia accepted him as like this this uh refugee basically yeah and so he was he was um he was billed at the time as this kind of anti-Iranian moderate moderate mm-hmm. and um at the time that this happened it really fit into the the anti-Iranian propaganda of the time so he was actually used as a mm-hmm. as an asset for the information war against Iran at the time and um so he'd left you know ostensibly because of um threats to his family that his family would be in danger and the the irony of that is that it turns out that he's kind of been on the run for uh, perhaps Having a part in his in the like the murder of his wife in Australia. Mm-hmm. Well, he's been out for twenty years, mm-hmm. and and in reading an article about him, uh, which you can find on Signs, uh, he morphed over the years. Some day, some years, he was this moderate, you know, pro-Western Islam as a peaceful religion cleric. 
and he never really was properly a cleric. There's no, no yeah, Ayatollah. Ayatollah, whatever he wanted to call himself, and and yet every um, um, well, the authorities wouldn't claim yeah. him. Wouldn't, not, yeah, they none wouldn't of the Islamic him. clerics who are legitimate Islamic clerics kept saying he's not one of our guys. He's just running around. And then other times, as the years passed, he would all of a sudden become this radical flavor of the month, and he'd be dressing in the robes and the turban and the whole thing. But as this article pointed out, this guy as he morphed from one persona to another, was very closely mirroring the the line of Western rhetoric for or against Iran. And he was just you know going along with it, whether it was because he wanted to or he was an asset. I mean, if he's an asset, they did a terrible job of sheep-dipping this guy. I think he might have just been a, a convenient asset because the guy is crazy. Yeah. And so he just happened to, you know, being crazy, they could just use whatever he said to... To further their own aims. So, so at first he's granted political asylum. Uh, you know, he spends the last 20 years in Australia. He claims to be an ayatollah, ayatollah, and they, the the actual authorities say there are no no you know official ayatollahs in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, this um, you know liberal Iranian and the West loves him. And then you know as as time goes on, he becomes more and more caricaturish. And like you're saying, like the contradictions, you can see him dressed as a um, as a, a sharp businessman, one minute and then the next he's he's in one kind of garb and then he switches to another. He was actually, uh, well, if you can, if he really is, um, you know, as religious as he says, he was a, a Shiite, a Shia, and but then if he's flying the the flag for ISIS, they are you know a he, radical he, he Sunni con- group. But... Converted to Sunnism like like six months ago, eight months ago. The thing is, is that um, the government, the security authorities, you know, Australia's FBI or whoever they are, had been getting warnings about these guys, like legitimate Muslim clerics within the country had been, you know, saying, you've got to do something about this guy. He's dangerous. He's crazy. He's, you know, going to do something. And they they never picked him up. They never brought him in. Not only that, but in one of his incarnations, I think this was uh, when he was speaking out against uh, Iran, I think that the um, at some point he had an incredible amount of media exposure, mm-hmm. yeah. and and was making all of these speeches, um, and and had all this time and was kind of you know manufactured you know recognized authority on uh, on how evil Iran was, like Lee Harvey Oswald on the street with his yeah exactly Castro pamphlets right? you know and and yeah. then he I guess his shelf life had reached an end and they figured this would be a great send off and look at all the look at all the hate and you know, including this is. Not the scale of 9/11, but it'll certainly boot their version of the Patriot Patriot Act through a lot faster. One of the things that he's he was famous for before this was writing kind of just extremely um, rude and um, what's the word? Just kind of horrible letters to families of Australian vets, like uh, military that were overseas, and so he'd write them nasty letters. <laughs> to the families, and so he was in the news for that, for just being this kind of blowhard jerk that was, uh, you know, just making, you know, just getting out there, <laughs> making a name for himself. Um, and, and they still let him walk around. Yeah, amazing. And and that that's, and this again ties back to the to the British doctor uh, in Pakistan, this whole um, pattern, where you have these um, clerics and. Um, radical Muslim guys that seem to get away with a 
whole lot of stuff. <laughs> and they're protected at every turn, it seems. And yet, um, then you get other guys, usually, you know, picked up in foreign countries for no reason whatsoever, and then, you know, sent to Abu Ghraib or some CIA black site to be tortured. Just a, as an aside, um, an update from, from our la- last week's show on the CIA torture report, uh, Seymour Hirsch um, just had a talk where he revealed something about Abu Ghraib, and this kind of puts the whole CIA torture report in perspective. Um, he says, he's first of all, he's seen all the pictures uh, from Abu Ghraib, uh, even the ones that haven't been released, because there are a lot that haven't been released. Um, because for various reasons, um, I can't, there's one, one guy, you know, I can't remember if it was McCain or someone like that who had said that, you know, we can't release this stuff because, you know, bad stuff would happen. It's so horrific. And because it is so horrific. And so Hirsch said, uh, told, told about a video that exists. He didn't say whether he'd seen the video or not, but there are various sources um, not just Hirsch, who have you know, attested to the existence of this video, um, because at Abu Ghraib there were not just male prisoners, but female prisoners as well. And some of those female prisoners had children, young boys. And so apparently in one of these videos, it shows these young boys being raped, being sodomized in front of their mothers. And by, by U.S. soldiers. Yeah, and you know who knows what they were using. They could have been using, you know, broom handles or whatever. But because um, that's the kind of thing they do, and that's the kind of thing that goes on. The CIA. I mean, so you look at the CIA torture report, and that is like peanuts compared to what they are actually doing. I mean, you just like the guys on um, on the behind the headlines last week were talking about all the stuff from from Abu Ghraib and just how horrific it was. I mean, people running around with you know feces covered in feces. Um, just in preparation for the show today, I was just, you know, I was searching images on Google, and you just search Abu Ghraib pictures, and just to look at some of that stuff again, I mean, the most disgusting, horrible stuff, I can't even, uh, it's just, that gets to me. But anyways, um, back to this kind of pattern that goes on. The guys that seem to get away with stuff, and the guys that don't, um, well, actually, no. We're, we'll we'll let you wait a bit for that one too. We'll get back to it. I want to I want to just say one more thing about this uh, Sydney siege. Um, so this is from a report in the mainstream news. So in September this year, police conducted a series of major anti-terrorism raids across Sydney. Following those raids, police alleged Islamic extremists were planning to behead a person in Martin Place in Sydney's central business district. Shortly after the siege began, the U.S. consulate sent an emergency message to its citizens, warning them to stay away from Martin Place. The message read, U.S. citizens are strongly encouraged to review your personal security plan, remain aware of your surroundings, including local events, and monitor local news stations for updates, maintain a high level of vigilance, and take appropriate steps to enhance your personal security. So... (laughs) Gee, how did they know this? Yeah. Well, and that kind of reminded me of, uh, just in a way, because the details aren't exact, but it reminded me of the, the recent attack in Canada, um, where the U.S. was the first to let the media know who the suspect was, provide his picture and name, 
And then, uh, then it's like, oh, well, hey, how did, you know, American intelligence know this before Canadian intelligence? Wouldn't it have been the polite thing if these guys knew these things to let Canadian intelligence know it and let them release the info to the, to the news reports? And why did they know in the first place? Yeah. How did they know this? Yeah, that's a message, too, to Canada. No. Of course, Harper's right on board, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But, okay, back to the the real the, the goods, the real stuff. So all, all these connections and the, the kind of patterns that play out. So reading these stories, I was kind of, I was reminded of a few things. Um, so this British doctor and his his radical cleric, Anjem Chudari, it just reminded me of another guy who has been in the news recently, uh, Fatula Gulen. And he is Turkish. Now, just as a little bit, a little bit of background, you know what's been happening lately with Turkey. Of course, um, the South Stream deal went through. Um, hold on. Okay, uh, I just got a note that that we lost sound. Can everyone hear us in the chat room there? Just let us know. Um, okay, okay, no, we're good. So Fethullah Gulen, he's been in the news. And uh, so South Stream goes through. Um, Putin basically says, okay, we're we're canceling it. And then they instead, Putin says, well, Turkey, do you want all of our great gas profits? And Turkey says, oh, why, yes, please, and thank you. And so in the the what has it been, a couple of weeks since that came out? December 1st. December 1st, that's right. Okay, so it's almost three weeks now. So in those few weeks, um, a few things, a few interesting things have happened. Um, besides that new deal, we have had Erdogan, the prime minister of Turkey, um, in the news for a couple of reasons. One, he, well, this is a bit of a criticism because he apparently, you know, um, fired some or got... <laughs> took out of position some head media guys in um, newspapers and uh, and TV. And so, of course, we see, we hear this criticism a lot about someone like Putin in his first days. And But if we look closely at what was going on in Turkey, well, it turns out that these guys that were basically fired were tied to this Fethullah Gulen. Now, Gulen was one of Erdogan's kind of protégés. Um, Erdogan got to power because of Gulen's kind of group of people and his influence in Turkey at the time. But there was a little bit of a rift between them recently. Now, Gulen, in 1999, I believe, he went to the United States ostensibly for, um, to, for, as a medical trip. He needed something, some kind of medical thing checked out. And, but then he'd been in the States for a little while, and then uh, a conversation that he had was released where he basically laid out his plan that um, he had agents basically all over um, um, Turkish government and security and kind of in all these key positions, and he was just waiting for the right time for them to step in and take power. So to get rid of the secular government and institute um, a a kind of Sharia law Islamic state in -hmm. Turkey. And so uh, Gulen has been in the United States for the past, what is it now, 15 years. And this guy is worth between 20 and $25 billion. 
he's he's the head of this organization that has hundreds of schools all over the planet, 200 charter schools in the United States. He's based in Pennsylvania. And um, again, hundreds of mosques and madrasas across the Middle East, Central, Central Asia, the Caucasus region. So like Kyrgyzstan and uh, Uzbekistan, um, Turkestan, various countries over there. And um, so keep that in mind. Two bits of news. First of all, um, a prosecutor in Turkey just requested to issue a warrant for Gulen's arrest in Turkey. So basically, I guess they want to get him extradited and take him back to Turkey and arrest him for the thing that he said in 1999, basically planning to you know, stage a coup in the country. There's that. And it turns out that Gulen... Now, if you haven't guessed already, Gulen is a CIA asset. He's, a, he's a, an agent. What he is, so he's this, this, just like the guy in Sydney, he's this so-called moderate um, Islamic cleric who just so happens to have billions of dollars, worldwide influence, schools and mosques set up all over the planet. And there have been allegations for years, and it recently came out in uh, an ex- Turkish intelligence agent or, to, or Turkish intelligence chief Nuri Gundes in his memoir. Um, he's got a lot of information in there. Um, one of his allegations is that, and this is supported by people in the State Department and others in the U.S., that many of his madrasas in, in Central Asia were used as cover um, to for the activities of CIA agents posing as English English teachers. So over uh, or up to 130 CIA agents given cover in these madrasas and schools. And um, also these guys, these CIA guys, um, had U.S. diplomatic passports. So these, these school teachers, these American English teachers, had U.S. diplomatic passports. Which when, gives you far more cover yeah. than just standard U.S. citizen. Yeah, and think about it. You're going to teach English as a second language in another country. Mm-hmm. How many guys like that get diplomatic passport? <laughs> so this this business of removing the the editors and, and these influential uh-huh. writers is trying to short circuit the uh, possibility of creating another Maiden. Exactly, because Gulen is the CIA's man, mm-hmm. and he's got he's still got a whole lot of influence in mm-hmm. Turkey. He's got you know people all over the place. So. It looks like what's happened here is Erdogan, even for the past year, like in Jan- from January of this year, he's been um, the attitude or the the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey has kind of been souring even since then. I mean, we had um, was it Biden that had to apologize to for for telling or for saying that Erdogan was letting the t- letting ISIS terrorists um, through the border through the borders, and so we had to apologize for that. There were a few incidents like that um, earlier this year and, and even earlier showing that things weren't as, and as Turkey, rosy. Turkey probably has a much even longer standing grievance in that they have been waiting how long for NATO membership? 50 years? Uh, 30, 30, I believe. Something, and, and I'm sure they are blaming the U.S.'s influence on the uh, the decision makers within the mm-hmm. U.S. that that this has been put off and put off and put off and put off, and finally they're just finding enough. 
mm-hmm. Russia wants to do a deal, so now they're going to do that, and that's just contributed to the to the descending quality of this relationship. Yeah. And Erdogan was originally democratically elected, I believe, in like you know 1998 or something like that. But he was they the the Turkish powers that be powers that be wouldn't let him um, rule the country. You know, the, the votes don't matter. Then a few years later, things changed, and he was voted again, and they let him rule the country. But now pretty popular and he has been popular and so it's it's like he's thinking that well you know i've got support now popular support i've been doing this for so long i'm going to start doing things the way i want to do them i'm not going to i'm not i'm going to stop you know doing everything nato tells me to do and hey look now i've got russia on my side and so then the the u.s who use this kind of gulen institute I, I the way i see it this is kind of their their response to that because it's not it's not actually Gulen anymore. I mean, he's an old man. He's um, there's reports that he's senile. Um, you know that he's not all there mentally anymore. But he has it's this whole um, this whole organization. The structure lives on. Structure lives on, and um, so. Well, you know, you, you had that story a couple of weeks ago. I think there were 700 or so um, ISIS. Uh, Mm-hmm. Soldiers that wanted to move. I think it was like seven thousand, or is it seven thousand? Seven thousand. And uh, they wanted to move through or back into the borders of uh, of Syria, and uh, Dragon didn't permit it. And that, yeah, that sounded to me like a like he was sending a message just to ISIS, but to the West. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to facilitate any more uh, war on Syria. Well, maybe he's maybe he's feeling better. He's got a bear at his back. Yeah. Well, and so there's a few more details about this this uh, Gulen guy that will fit into. The, the, so this will hopefully make clear some of the stories that we talked about earlier, like the the Peshawar, Pakistan shooting, and the the Australia, the one in Sydney. Um, so these schools and madrasas have actually been banned in certain countries in Central Asia. Um, they've been banned in Russia. So Russia actually they they kicked out twenty Gulenites or Gulenists. I don't know. How to refer to them? Um, ghouls. Like, <laughs> ghouls. <laughs> and so, so these these Gulen schools are, are, are banned in Russia. Um, but when Gulen came to the states, um, he was again, you know, granted a, a visa, and now I believe he's even got residence. But who helped him get re- residence? Well, there was uh, one one CIA officer, uh, Graham Fuller, I believe his name was. Who personally, or he was FBI. He personally wrote a letter of recommendation for this guy and uh, t- to get him in. He was also backed by, now this guy was CIA, I believe, the um, Abramowitz, Abramowitz. And um, so he's had, and he's had numerous instances of the State Department and CIA basically covering for him and providing him uh, support. Whereas the F, uh, other parts of the FBI, Department of Justice. Um, Department of Homeland Security, they've all had investigations on him and basically say this guy's dirty, but he's protected at every turn, it seems, by CIA and State Department. Which tells you how the power structure runs. Yeah. And this is actually, the, this this case kind of, this ties into the stuff that Sabelle Edmonds was getting into um, mm-hmm. in her whistleblowing case. Um, this Gulen guy, because he's got ties to to these big players in the U.S. power structure. And then when you when you see how this plays out 
what what's really going on here is he's running these schools that are basically being used as recruiting grounds for all of these terror groups. So what happens, you set up the school, you've got CIA agents that get access to all these different countries where they, you know, it's, it's, it seems on the surface, it seems very innocent. Oh, you know, he's opening schools to, to teach the youth. And uh, it's very humanitarian. And all of a sudden you get like, oh, study abroad for a year. We're going to send you to Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. And uh, I believe it was in Uzbekistan where several graduates of one of these schools were arrested because they subsequently went on to join these radical ex- you know, extremist terror- terrorist groups. So that's why it struck me as, as funny that this UK doctor was had links to this radical UK cleric, Chudari. Because this seems to be the way that plays out, is that there are um, radical, well, not even radical and not so radical clerics that are given kind of free passage in in Western countries. These guys are, are basically the handlers for other handlers that recruit and train and basically brainwash people into, you know, joining Al-Qaeda. It's kind of like it's a more extreme version of what the FBI does. The FBI just uses their agents to convince these guys to to join some fictional or, you know, to join Al-Qaeda. But there's no actual Al-Qaeda membership involved. They're just telling an FBI agent that they want to join Al-Qaeda. And then, okay, so they've joined Al-Qaeda. And then they say, okay, well, um, we're going to we're going to give you some some bomb materials and we'll do all this stuff. And so they're entrapped into um, taking part in an operation that would never really take off in the first place because it's entirely a creation of the FBI, and the FBI arrests them, and then they get charged with being terrorists. Well, given this huge network of schools and training operations that he's got going, that mask as schools, um, you wonder how ISIS grew so quickly mm-hmm. from this, this nobody knew who they were three years ago, and they have, what, 30,000 people recruited now? Where did they all come from? Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I mean, even a meme doesn't have that much power. Mm-hmm. So so you've got these schools that actually produce what could be called real terrorists. So these are guys that actually go out and kill people, like ISIS. And, you know, like all those so-called moderate rebels in Syria. I mean, it's just, uh, it's kind of ridiculous. But if you look at the, so you look at the, the region that Gulen kind of focuses on, the Caucasus and Central Asia. Well, what were you just talking about earlier? Ilan, mm-hmm. about Chechnya. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Beslan, and uh, I recently wrote an article on some recent developments in that department, and so we'll see how those connect. Um, so, well, it started because I read a kind of just a, a little funny report that made me giggle, and that was that the the head of Chechnya, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, and I, I just think that's a great name, first name Ramzan. He. Um, he basically said that he's contemplating having a talk with Putin and and quitting his job as the head of Chechnya and then going to join the the rebels fighting in East Ukraine. Can you imagine Obama doing something? I want to resign as president so I can support the cause of freedom and justice. <laughs> like, wow. Now this came this came as a response to three members of the Ukrainian Rada: uh, Yuri Beryoza, Andriy Leyus, and Ihor Moisechuk. Sorry to all the Ukrainians for that pronunciation. But um, these guys had, uh, they did a few 
really stupid things, which is understandable, them being stupid. Um, first, after the terrorist attack that took place in Chechnya earlier this month, in which 10 militants, you know, came into Grozny and were and ended up killing 10 police officers and then themselves were, were killed. After that, these three guys stood up um, basically supporting the, the terrorists in this operation, saying, you know, good job, guys, you know, wish you could have done more. And then they called for uh, Kadyrov to be investigated and put on an international, the international, like, watch list uh, of, you know, people that are not nice. And one of the guys, Moisechuk, even put a video up of him uh, shooting an assault rifle at a portrait, a photograph of Kadyrov. And this shouldn't be very surprising either because um, this guy, Moisechuk, I'm just going to call him Chucky. Um, Chucky was a former commander of the Azov Battalion. Now, this is one of those so-called volunteer battalions um, in uh, in Ukraine that is either either a volunteer battalion or, battalion or run by uh, Kolomoisky, who is kind of one of the big movers and shakers down there, um, dual does, Ukrainian-Israeli citizen. Doesn't he fit the bill for that whole group? Yeah. I mean, it's like his private army. Yeah, yeah he's got a few of them. Um, a few of these battalions, and these are the Nazi guys. These are the guys that um, are the death squads, basically. So basically, an Israeli, uh, yeah, connected oligarch supporting mm-hmm. Nazism. Yep. And there you go. And so, so that was Kadyrov's response to these guys saying, "Well, you know, I'm going to come over there and and bury you all." That's what he said. He was he would bury anyone that supports the terrorists. Um. So. After that, both Kadyrov and Lavrov responded, saying that they wanted to initiate criminal proceedings against these guys for making these statements. Um, Understandable. Probably nothing will come of it. But then um, another incident happened in the news. Um, One of the guys that was involved in the 2002 Moscow theater hostage crisis this was just a couple of years before Beslan. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the guys involved in that attack in Russia was a guy named Hassan Zakayev. He was caught trying to cross the border from Ukraine into Crimea with false passports. And so that kind of struck me. I was like, okay, wow. Um, what is a Chechen terrorist doing in Ukraine? Well, it shouldn't be that much of a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they both they both hate Russia, so they, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And that reminded me of another story, which was had to, which had to do with the so-called White Widow. Now, oh, yeah. yeah, you remember her? Oh yeah, the one who supposedly died defending Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. So she was a she was the wife of one of the guys who was allegedly involved in the seven seven bombings in London. And she ended up becoming this kind of terrorist mastermind, apparently, and you know, go, moving all over in Africa and various countries and setting up operations. And she was always, and she had her children with her at the time. Right. And, and and almost it appeared to be unlimited money because this yeah. woman was no ascetic. 
at all. Mm -hmm. She loved her clothing. She loved her shopping hijab notwithstanding. And there was no visible means of support for this very lavish lifestyle. I mean, they did not hang out in tents in some little mountain gorge Mm -hmm. anywhere. It was really quite strange. And I'd recommend listening to one of the old episodes of Sot Talk Radio where um, Joe and Neil interviewed uh, a guy. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he produced a documentary that you can watch on YouTube about her, basically pointing out that it's it, it's almost you know a sure bet that she is British intelligence. She has been for a long time, and um, even pro- probably before the seven seven bombings, it's possible she's you know even her husband's handler in a sense for for that operation, but. The what happened was that earlier, um, about a month ago, I believe it was uh, November, there was a report that came out that she was killed in Ukraine, like you said, Carolyn, that she was acting as a sniper for the IDAR battalion, another one of those Nazi battalions, and that she was shot by a Russian sniper, a Russian volunteer, and uh, so, you know, those Russian volunteers that uh, that make their way into to East Ukraine and then they're all on holiday yeah, from their holiday. regular job. <laughs> but what happened after that is that it was reported and then nothing came of it. Um, the British authorities said, yeah, we'd, we've heard the reports, but uh, we haven't had any confirmation. And there was no news about that afterwards, like nothing. And uh, so that, you know, that makes me wonder what the real story is. Um, you know, did it really happen? Was it a, was it kind of like a ruse set up by, by Russia that kind of messaged to the West? Because, Think about it. Think of if one of the the UK's most wanted terrorists turns up in Ukraine fighting for the allies of the US mm-hmm. and the UK mm-hmm. and and getting killed. It's like, well, how did she get there? Why was she there? How did she, you know, how does that work? Right? On the other hand, it might have been a retrieval operation to get her out. Yeah. By the UK or, you know, whomever just to, 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 you know, okay, this persona is no longer useful, so we'll just kill it, and you know, she'll turn up somewhere else. So that's the story to to keep an eye out. Yeah, so that that's a that's a mystery right there. But the connection is that um, these guys, like the Nazi guys in in Ukraine, they are a Nazis, b you know, brutal psychopaths that kill women and children, torture people, and they're doing so on behalf of NATO and the U.S. and the CIA. And then you've got these Chechen terrorists who are, A, real terrorists, you know, Wahhabi radicals, B, psychopaths that kill people and cut off their heads and torture people, and C, Set up and run by the CIA and NATO, <laughs> so there are there are parallels, and it's kind of like it's a match made in heaven for for these two guys, or these two groups of people, to kind of get together and and work to fight against Russia. Um, I just want to point that out. Um, so if you look back far enough, you find the same hands running the strings. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And with the same agendas. Yeah. I mean, uh, this comes back to geopolitical power, period, mm-hmm. and uh, using proxy revolutionaries and terrorists to uh, destroy Russia economically, uh, militarily, any any which way they can. Mm-hmm. In the end, it's a resource war. 
and Russia's got it. Yeah. That brings me to an interesting fellow that's uh, just been uh, approved as being the U.S. ambassador to Russia, and his name is John Teft. Um, he's got quite a, a bit of a history as well. Um, he was He's been in Russia before, between 96 and 99. He was a deputy chargé d'affaires for the U.S. ambassador in Moscow. And, of course, that was right before uh, Putin came into power. Pretty much uh, anti-communist, anti-Russian. And that's just about the time that Russia received a massive IMF loan, seemingly as a reward. But uh, then an about-face had occurred. So... Between 2000 and 2003, he became the U.S. ambassador to Lithuania. Now, that's at a period of time where Lithuania went through a wave of rabid Russophobia. And that's despite the fact that Russia wasn't threatening Lithuania in any way. And ordinary Lithuanians have no history of hostility uh, to ordinary Russians. So subsequently, operation, I guess you could call it, started to fail. Uh, He moved on to uh, being an ambassador to Georgia between 2005 and 2009. (laughs) And now, of course, we all know what happened in 2008 when we had the great uh, Georgia war in Russia, where Mm -hmm. Russia took care of that. So after that failed operation, he moved on to, drumroll please, to Ukraine. (laughs) Gets around. (laughs) He sure... uh, Ends up in all these little hot spots. Uh, quite coincidental. With the NGOs trailing along. <laughs> and so, of course, they're, uh, you know, they couldn't get rid of the pro-Russian president Yanukovych before. But as he arrived, uh, they were able to do that. Um, of course, enlist neo-Nazi elements in order to do that. So now he's moved on to Russia. And uh, kind of a surprise that Russia would approve this this ambassador, but I guess as the saying goes, you keep your friends close, but you keep your enemies closer. Mm-hmm. So um, that was kind of a question about him because uh, he's become progressively more anti-Russian as as he's gone from one country to the next. Um, but all of these actions that he's done has damaged U.S.'s reputation around the world. So it kind of makes you wonder who exactly is he working for? <laughs> is he working against the U.S. or not. Uh, so time will only tell uh, what goes on in Russia. I don't think the U.S. much cares about its reputation anymore. <laughs> they're going to do what they're going to do. Well, it could be that um, it isn't, uh, you know, obviously the the U.S. government, at least on the surface, um, would have to approve of this guy to be able to offer him as an ambassador to Russia. So if it isn't the actual U.S. government, there is a faction. And we all know that the U.S. government isn't a unified organization. There's cross-purposes. There's different levels of power. There's factions that work against each other. So at this point, somebody who's got the clout has managed to put him through as an ambassador. Putin, for whatever reason, is going, okay, sure, you know, we'll take him. Um, I guess it's easier to call someone on the carpet when they live three blocks away than when they live in the States. So, I mean, it, it, it could be a convenience for him to have this guy within arm's reach. Speaking of Russia, 
and then making a connection to Cuba. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's been going on with Cuba? Well, that's been really freaky. Um, a couple of things have developed in the last week or so. Um, all of a sudden, in this weird about face, and people are screaming about it all over the place, that the U.S. decided to reapproach Cuba and say, hey, let's be friends. We're so close. We can trade. We can do this. We can do that. And uh, Obama, in a rare moment of cogency, actually said, we've been, you know, embargoing this country for 50 years and it hasn't worked, so maybe we should do something else. You know, we've been doing this for 50 years and, and the results have not been what we wanted, so let's try something new. Um, on the surface, uh, you kind of wonder, you look at Cuba and think, you know, what are you thinking? Obviously, the business community is ecstatic over this and the travel industry and everything else. Uh, personally, I thought this was a preemptive move on Russia because they've been watching kind of slack jawed as Russia's made friend after friend after friend, and maybe somebody said, hey, let's try that instead of bombing them. So we'll try to be friends. But uh, if, you know, they don't want Cuba acquiring the protection that other uh, countries are, you know, slowly getting by being associated with Russia. So I could see that as a as a preemptive move. Um, and apparently, just before this happened, so you wonder if the Russians had gotten wind of it at first. The uh, they forgave the last of the very sizable debt that Cuba had to Soviet, the yeah, Soviet 90%. Union, ninety percent of it, which was like thirty two billion or some ridiculous number that they couldn't ever ever pay off. And in return, this is speculation. Though, according to the people that I read, Russia is now reactivating all of their intelligence outposts. Apparently, at one point, at the height of the Cold War, there were over 5,000 um, people there, Russians, and outposts, listening outposts and intelligence analysis centers set up all over the island. They were practically you know, in supporting the economy. There were so many people there. And when uh, Russia was trying to make its rapprochement to the West and we want to be friends and we want to be part of the EU and, and trade and just be a good little Western capitalist, um, as a gesture, they ostensibly shut all this stuff down. The official reason was we can't afford it. We're so broke right now. We just can't afford to keep this running. So we're just going to shut it up and go home. Um, now... Uh, having possibly gotten wind of this whole U.S. gambit to try and, you know, extend their reach into the Caribbean, they are now reopening their intelligence, which is probably a very smart move. The other the other issue, too, is that uh, in the local geopolitics of the area, Venezuela is very upset about this because Cuba-Venezuela was kind of a linchpin of Latin American resistance to U.S. moves to hegemony. Uh, Venezuela is really, really a true West and to the states. That is going to weaken this informal alliance of those northern South American and Central American countries. So that's a situation to be watched also. Well, Russia doesn't seem to be too upset about the whole deal. I know. That's so strange. They, they, they act, they, they have the impression that Cuba is not going to fall for the typical U.S. imperialist actions that they generally do in South America. Um, there, I've seen several editorials written by people who say, you know, Cuba's Cuba's been playing this game for over 50 years.
so they know what they're doing. They'll get they'll get the good they can out of the situation, but they're not going to just roll over and become another little U.S. colony. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, you mentioned, Carolyn, what Obama had said. I've actually the quote right here, oh, so good. let me read it. <laughs> he said, after all, these 50 years have shown that isolation has not worked. It's time for a new approach. I do not believe that we can keep doing the same thing for over five decades and expect a different result. Moreover, it does not serve America's interests or the Cuban people to try to push Cuba toward collapse. Even if that worked, and it hasn't for 50 years, we know from hard-earned experience that countries are more likely to enjoy lasting transformation if their people are not subjected to chaos. What words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, with such selective application. Exactly. I mean, is this guy schizophrenic? Um, now, just think about that for a second and then look at what the U.S. is doing to Russia. They are open about wanting to isolate Russia, <laughs> engaging in economic and information warfare to destabilize the country in the with the grand goal of regime change, creating chaos. I mean, isolation has not worked. Okay, so isolation doesn't work. So why? the hell are doing it in Russia. Mm-hmm. It's time for a new approach. Um, you know, doing the same thing for 50 years um, just doesn't work. What have you been doing for the last 50 plus years with Russia? And why hasn't it worked? What are you thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he has, I mean, you can tell that Obama um, either is just a complete idiot or he just says whatever he's told to say. Because and the the kind of lip service that he gives to these humanitarian ideals, I mean, what was it he said in there about, um, yeah, we know from hard experience that, that countries are more likely to enjoy lasting transformation if their people are not subjected to chaos. Um, you know, it doesn't serve America's interests or the Cuban people. You know, well, what about the Russian people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, except for like a tiny piece of Alaska, shout out to Sarah Palin, um, Cuba's, you know, Russia's not 90 miles from your border. There's a little bit of interest to keep things calm and peaceful there than have somebody who's really upset. Well, you know, this this whole speech by Obama, I mean, this was really the reason why the man was hired. Um, he's a bullshitter extraordinaire. And he's managed to, at least on the surface, uh, convince uh, Raul Castro that uh, he wants to resume normal relations. And um, I don't know, it just it just looks like complete uh, complete fake. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I have this picture of, of Raul got Putin on a second line, going, "Okay, what do I do now?" I just, I just can't get that picture out of my head. <laughs> the picture that comes to my mind is, uh, "Well, if Russia can take Crimea, then we'll we'll we'll, we'll take Cuba here and uh, do the same kind of move." Well, I don't know. The geopolitics aren't the same, but you know, there's ways and ways of making a country your own, even if you don't change the name. Mm-hmm. The thing is, you know, whole renewed relation thing opens the floodgates for. NGOs and ambassadors and you know, all sorts of uh, mm-hmm. intelligence operatives to you know go back into Cuba and 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 do their thing. Yeah. And you know it's very likely that before Cuba knows it, it's going to be under the uh, I don't know the the Brown Revolution. Could be. But um, it's also it's also if if the U.S. is thinking along these lines, it's a springboard back into Latin America because they've had a distinct lack of success there with the exception of say Bolivia. Yeah. 
so that would be a way of working your way back into South America, if it can be done, and that is a big if. Cuba's fended them off for, what, five-plus decades, so they've learned, they have learned a lot, too. Did you do it? Did any of you guys look into the details of the the, the re- pretty recently released USAID scandal? You know that we found out about in Cuba. Well, um, we'll check it out. We might talk about it next week, but you can look it up. It just it just came out like last week, I think, um, right before Raúl Castro Castro and you know Obama made these these statements. You can actually read a statement from from Castro on Counterpunch, where he talks about his kind of view on it. But uh, it was released that. You know, until recently, USAID, when one of those uh, NGO American democracy, you know, corporations um, was until very recently, you know, unsurprisingly, um, kind of doing their influence thing in Cuba using like a Cuban rap groups. Oh, I thought, weren't they the ones who who were sponsoring this brand new company that was providing Twitter really, really cheaply and then trying to use tweets to influence through social media yes. as hummingbird or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't look too closely into it. Mm. But was, so, just a few late, just a few days later, this happened. <laughs> yeah. And the head of that USAID branch to Cuba got fired as well. Oh. Just two days before. <laughs> Interesting. More news. This I had a good laugh over this one. Bulgaria. Do you want to tell this one, Carolyn? Um, okay, well, this this story is a bit of a week old. I don't have a lot of notes on it, but Bulgaria um, was supposed to make a huge amount of money uh, with South Stream coming through, but they've also been used as kind of the, the point man for the EU negotiations with Gazprom and with Russia about transit, and the EU was saying, well, you can't own your pipelines. Once they come out of Russia, you can't own your pipelines. You can own the stuff that goes through it, but you can't control the pipelines and they're throwing up all of these um, antitrust legislation. And this went on for four years. Four years they're talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. And then finally Russia, like any good capitalist, said, okay, four years, we've had enough. Yes, we put all this money into preparation and getting infrastructure and making our plans and all that, but we're, we're, we're done. Goodbye. And then they went off and talked to Turkey and said, would you like our pipeline? And Turkey said, yes. Bulgaria immediately stood up screaming about all the revenue they were going to lose. Um, Putin, being the good lawyer, guy for a lawyer, said, I, you know, if I was Bulgaria, I'd go sue the EU for my lost revenue, you know, because, <laughs> but yeah, that's good. I would, too. Then Bulgaria turned around and said, well, you know what? It's okay. We can get the permits. Everything's in place. Let's go. We're ready to go. And Russia's like, sorry, you know, you had four years and we're done. And so now there's yet another rift in the EU. Bulgaria is very unhappy because they can really use the revenue. And uh, that story's going on from there. I mean, I mean, it is sad because, like, Bulgaria, the leaders of Bulgaria were the ones, technically, that did the blocking. You know, they didn't allow, they didn't get the permits ready mm-hmm. because of the EU, you know, saying, you know, doing their, their legalistic nitpicking because um, these deals were originally signed at the time, the legislation that EU changed, which then, you know, allowed them to block and delay this mm-hmm. project. And, so, you know, I don't think they wanted to block it. They just want to make sure yeah. that they got as much money out of it as possible 
at Russia's expense. And this is infrastructure and, and, and distribution points, I think, that Russia had already built and owned, and they wanted Russia to sell it off to the various interests in each country. And Russia was saying, we're not going to do that. Yeah, so they were, they were basically trying to bluff Russia to, to get Russia to concede to, to what they wanted. And so Russia responded by saying, okay, well, then we're just not going to do it. So then... All the there's a there's a good article with all with comments after the fact from just ordinary Bulgarians posting and just ripping into their government and and saying what a dumb move this was and why are you guys listening to the EU and doing what they were telling you to instead of making a choice for us because this would have been good for us for Bulgaria. Um, and so really, you know, Bulgaria. They had their chance and they and they blew it. So it it is sad, but um, but really, I mean, <laughs> what can you do when when your politicians are basically just uh, you know, mouthpieces for the EU and the United States? I mean, well, there's that. Yeah. Well, that moves on to to the higher level. You know, if you wanted to talk about, we've been basically talking about the second stringers. Mm-hmm. the proxies of everything, and then now we get to the, to the big guys and what's going on with Russia. And right now, um, I just saw in the news that Congress has passed a whole new set of of uh, sanctions against Russia. It's addressing mostly Russian energy companies in the defense industry with regards to the sales to Syria, more anti-Russian propaganda, and the dem- democratization programs in Ukraine. So... You know, Congress is standing up saying Russia's still being a bully. They're not doing what they should be. And so here's more sanctions. Uh, but it's it's hysterical because it is not going to help. They're, it's like they're, they're looking at Russia through these lenses that have no bearing on reality at all in terms of Russia's basic economic strength. They can sanction them until the cows come home. And Russia may suffer a little in terms of belt tightening and... Uh, higher prices because of the ruble drop, and we can get to that too, but they are extremely well positioned to handle any kind any kind of economic problems at this point. They have... I'm going to interrupt there. I think we've got a caller here. Oh, good. So hold that thought, Karen. I will. Okay. So, caller, do we have a caller? Yes. Yes, who is this? This is Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? How you Do you doing? have a question for us today? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, sort of. It's more of a more of a comment, really. Um, oh, that's great. You're talking earlier on about you're talking on about the Gulen movement. Yeah. Uh, the Turkish Islamic Islamist uh, Imam Fethullah Gulen and his crazy movement yeah. all around the world and stuff. But and you mentioned that um, that one of the uh, he's been in the U.S. for a long time. Uh, basically, yeah. because he was kicked out of Tur- Turkey um, mm-hmm. and on just banned from all places, like you said, Russia and Uzbekistan. Uh, but um, and you mentioned that Graham Fuller, who is a kind of career CIA officer uh, mm-hmm. with all sorts of shitty, shitty, a shitty past and shitty dealings, that he was one of his official references for, for he was an official reference for Gulen uh, getting his green yeah. card application to enter the U.S. back in the early nineties. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you mentioned. I may have missed it. But uh, Graham Fuller was also kind of directly implicated in the Boston bombing story. Oh no, I didn't mention that. What's the, what are the details on that? 
Well, basically, you know, uh, the two Sarnet brothers, the two supposed Boston bombers who are clearly kind of patsies, yep. uh, set up uh, to take the fall for uh, yeah, a terror plot sting gone live, I suppose you could call it, um, or allowed to go live. Um, their uncle, his name was Ruslan, he <clears throat> uh, changed the name slightly to, to Sarnev or something, or something slightly different, but his name is Ruslan Sarnev, his uncle, but his uncle was um, the uncle of the two Boston bombers, their father's brother. Uh, he was basically, uh, he worked for, for uh, Fuller. Uh, and he, he not only worked for Fuller, but he was uh, he was married for a short time to Fuller's daughter, and uh, and he stayed in his office. He set up some kind of an organization, some kind of an American Dagestan kind of NGO type organization. This is uh, Sarnev's brother. Um, he uh, stayed in Gulans. His uh, the offices of his of this organization that he set up were in in Fuller's house, Fuller's own house. When he was married to his daughter, this is the, mm-hmm. you know. So I mean, <clears throat> the whole. I mean, there's, there's. Oh yeah, well, it's amazing, you know. That I mean, it provides this really uh, interesting link uh, between this Gulan guy, um, and what you've been saying about him, and and his connection with uh, with the Boston bombings and basically false flag terror attacks. Um, so, you know, and, and the tentative link thing, I mean, not a direct link, but a tentative link to, to Gulen and the fact that Gulen, um, I think there's a, there was a book, um, and uh, there was a retired Turkish intelligence chief, because obviously this guy Gulen was booted out of Turkey, but in, in 2010 there was a retired intelligence chief in Turkey, uh, his name was Gundes. Um, yep. He published a memoir called Close Witness to Revolutions and Anarchy. Did, did you mention that? Yeah, I mentioned and the book. That, what, what detail are you on? Right, yeah. Well, he, meant, he said that uh, in the book, he said that uh, Gulen's worldwide Islamic movement was, uh, had been providing cover for the CIA since the mid-1990s. And yep. that, it affected, that he, say, he said it sheltered 130 CIA agents in, in Kyrgyzstan yep. and Uzbekistan alone. And I'm just wondering if, um, you know, it would be interesting to see that uh, if Gulen... Gulen's organization never operated in uh, kind of Dagestan or Chechnya or that that region, you know. Uh, it'd be interesting. To, it's an interesting proposition that maybe one of these, uh, the older Sarna Boston bomber brother, uh, who you know went to Dagestan just in the year previous to his alleged uh, bombing of the Boston Marathon, it'd be interesting to see if he uh, had any contact with any kind of Gulen madrasas or schools in Dagestan. Because if he did, then he was being uh, most likely handled by some CIA. Uh, operatives associated with the Gulen movement, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read of any direct connections between the Gulen movement and and Dagestan and Chechnya, but um, I know Sibella Edmonds has been talking about not only the Gulen movement and and their involvement in, in the other like Stan countries, but also that it looks like that Dagestan and Chechnya have been basically part of the same. CIA operation, if not using Gulen, then using other you know proxies, and that you can mm-hmm. there's actually interesting you can look at the graph of terrorist attacks in in uh, Chechnya and Dagestan over the past um, 15 years, and the the Chechnya one just kind of um, there's a spike around 2002 2003, and then it kind of then it really drops off, 
and it's been really low for the all the years since then. But in Dagestan, the 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 spike is like 2004, 2006, or and it, it's actually getting bigger in Dagestan. So it looks like after after Chechnya, that Dagestan is kind of the new um, center for those kind of operations. So I'm going to look into that and see if there are any uh, any connections there with the, with the Gulen movement at least. Too. That sounds pretty mm-hmm. interesting. What do you think, uh, Joe? Yeah. Do you think this? Um, I, I was just wondering, you know, um, calling for Gulen's extradition and uh, prosecution in Turkey seems like a pretty strong move on the part of this other action of power, Erdogan. Do you, do you think? Um, do you think Erdogan is uh, sending a message? Do you think he's uh, going to follow through and align himself even further with Russia after this uh, South Stream deal? Well, it's really funny. You know, I've had a good laugh this past week. Uh, we, um, I think we mentioned uh, on our show a couple of weeks ago uh, after Russia dropped South Stream and went with Turkey, um, we said, you know, look out for any kind of social unrest or protests going on in Turkey, you know, uh, as in a kind of color revolution type situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within within a week or two, uh, you had, or you did have pro- protests of a sort, in the sense you had um, the best kind of pro- pro- color revolution protest that was before they could have the protests, you had the Turkish government coming in and raiding, uh, you know, the offices of these uh, Gulen organization or affiliated organizations, you know, because they would be point uh, at which or from which this kind of a revolution would be launched against uh, Erdogan and and Turkey by the CIA, you know. So it's like it's like what uh, I've been thinking uh, and saying on and off over the past few months is that as the CIA and the U.S. State Department, etc., you know, continue to do the same kind of uh, or follow the same kind of agenda uh, in terms of fomenting discord and discontent and uh, protests uh, via their NGOs in foreign countries the more they do that and they've been doing it for a long time uh, the more the countries targeted by that kind of uh, destabilization are going to wake up to what's going on and take action before it can you know, gain any traction and I think that's what we kind of at least saw there in, in Turkey that the uh, that the Erdogan government were like this, and we're kind of we've been around the block a few times, you know. We're even maybe engaged in some of this kind of stuff with you. <laughs> so for you to turn around and try it out on us is a bit stupid, you know. Uh, so before you even, we, they probably got intimations that something was was maybe in the offing or maybe they were just taking a, a you know precautionary preventative measure by trumping up charges you know uh, i mean they trumped up charges i suppose against the, these Gulen organizations but uh maybe they weren't guilty exactly of what they what the of what they're being charged of but certainly they mm-hmm. probably would have been at some point in the future so you know yeah uh, we're in the we're in the realm of thought crime here but it's thought crime that is uh that you know is is, is pretty uh, accurate in the sense of thoughts lead to actions and uh, actions lead to uh, regime change, you know. So um, it's for me that kind of stuff. Uh, groups like Gulen definitely uh, the Gulen movement and any country that takes action against them, given who Gulen is and what his history is, uh, he should be kicked out of every country and sent back to 
to the Valley of the Beast, you know, where he came from, yeah. from from where he was yeah, spawned, basically. Yeah, stick him back and get them all in Pennsylvania and he can open up madrasas and try and convert all the pasty white Christians in America to Islam or something, you know. Um, he he may have some success, but the um, I think, uh, yeah, I think Erdogan, I mean, Turkey has been rejected from the EU. They first wanted to join the EU 50 years ago. And they have yeah. been stalling. Okay, there's a process and stuff, but it's been 50 years they've been more or less waiting. And the EU has just been, you know, ambivalent about, you know, I don't think they're ever going to or ever intended to really admit uh, Turkey is a full member of the EU. So um, certainly, you know, uh, the Turks have nothing to lose, I don't think, by flipping the bird to the EU because they really have been, you know, screwing them around. But yeah. I thought it was very funny. And I, and I certainly hope they do. Uh, continue to align more with uh, Russia because it would make absolute sense. I mean, they're right on the border, you know, they share the Black Sea. So, um, mm-hmm. but we thought, I thought it was very funny to see the Bulgarian uh, Prime Minister this week coming out and saying, uh, we really, you know, we, we like South Stream. Don't get the wrong idea here, you know, and, you know, we're fully ready to just, you know, you get those pipes in, we're, you know, we'll, we'll hook up we're with just you, no problem, here. you know. Yeah, we were just messing that last time. It wasn't even us, it was the EU. And, you know, you have to excuse us. We have no balls, you know. And and we backed down in front of EU bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, but give us, a, give us a second chance, please. And, uh, you know, that's kind of perfect. Cause Putin, I mean, that's what Putin wants. Does Putin want, want all, has wanted all along or has been aiming for all along, I think, is to play both sides against the middle, you know. He sees this bunch mm-hmm. of feckless kind of uh, ideologues, you know, psychopaths in Washington, psychopathic ideologues in, in, in the EU who, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're forgotten that they're Europeans, you know, and think they're Americans or something and, and, and forgotten where they live, you know. Or maybe, like we've often suggested, they're being blackmailed or whatever it is. But the bottom line is you can't... Who do they, where do they get off, you know, screwing around uh, in that way, you know, in a high-handed yeah, kind yeah. of... Uh, arrogant way, screwing around with a major multi-billion uh, long-standing, fairly long-standing plan for a, a, a southern uh, gas pipeline, and you suddenly turn around and say, well, maybe we're um, not so interested in your South Stream anymore. What do you think about that, Putin, huh? You know, and Putin's like, well, you know, F you then. Bye-bye. And they're like, how dare you? You're not, that, that's not what you're meant to do. Hey, come back here. <laughs> <laughs> and Bulgaria and other Eastern European countries are like, what the fuck is going on? You know what I mean? We were set to make millions from this. What? And everybody's in disarray. And then, I mean, and the end result is Bulgaria has to go and, like, cry and save some face, but, like, look like a complete bunch of cretins by going back and saying, we're ready to go with South Stream whenever you're ready. And Putin's like, uh, did you miss the memo? You're the ones who dissed me, so I'm out of here. You know, I mean, I don't know what planet you people are on, you know? That's all very funny. Oh, this parting shot was... I just said it was very funny. Well, yeah, and the parting shot was, well, I think Bulgaria should sue the EU for all its lost revenue. It's like spoken like a true lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get the tidges on their asses. <laughs> Putin can throw in a lawsuit. Putin can throw in a lawsuit there as well, just for good measure. Oh, yeah. They're not, absolutely. There's no money to pay for it. contract. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... So, uh, right. yeah, that's all I have to say about the war in Vietnam. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for calling, Joe. Mm-hmm. No worries. Good show. 
Okay, have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Moving on. Anything else we wanted to talk about today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. These are stories I've been, like, chortling about all week. You know, if you want if you want good news in a, in a rarefied-looking sort of way, you just have to look at Russia because they just continue to hit them out of the park. Um, we talked about uh, two weeks ago that uh, Putin had put out this call to his uh, all the oligarchs who had holdings all over the world. Apparently, there is approximately... $2 trillion of Russian assets around the world. And he's, and then he made this offer to all of these people who have these offshore assets that apparently he's going to make not exactly illegal, but far more difficult to hold. So he gave them a one-month amnesty to bring their assets home. And, you know, we'll just legalize and you can keep it, but, you know, we want it from Russia. Well, the biggest oligarch of them all, a gentleman named Alisher Uzmanov, is the first one to step up and do so. And his two biggest assets apparently are a cell phone company and an iron mining conglomerate. And he has and is starting to move his assets back into Russia, which is going to definitely help their domestic economy. Um, it, it's it's good. Uh, he wants to. Putin has said straight up he wants to legalize the funds. He does not want to add them to the government coffers. They don't have a deficit. They have debt. The deficit. So in a sense, you know, it's going to add to the strength of the Russian economy, but the government itself doesn't need it. Which, I mean, what government in the world besides Russia can stand up and say that? You know, bring your money back so we can put it to work, you know, improve our business and economy and trade, but we don't actually with ourselves. Amazing. Just amazing. And then uh, everybody's jumping up and down. And uh, the ruble is falling and oil prices are falling. That's going to hurt Russia so much. Uh, that's two separate things. Uh, first of all, the whole oil price falling, again, with the psychopaths, this is not the first time they have played that card. That was one of the factors, among others, that brought down the Soviet Union because falling on oil prices in the 8990 uh, situation did work very strongly against the Soviet Union. They were in a very poor position economically anyway, and then when the oil prices dropped precipitously, it basically bankrupted the country. Regime changed, followed the communism, bringing in democracy, and then a, a decade of trying to cozy up to and say, let's be friends to the West, because they had this naive idea that that if they just did things like the Western countries, then we can all be friends and trade and be happy, and apparently did not really cotton on to the idea that the whole the whole gambit was about accessing Russian resources, and for 10 years, it did run amok in all the privatization and the polluting of the country, and big industries were sold off for pennies, and it was, it was just brutal, just brutal and evil. However, things are different now. Uh, number one, uh, Russia only has about $678 billion in foreign debt in the world economy. That is, that's like having 10000 left on your mortgage. You, know, you may as well consider it paid off. Uh, and it has been paying it down very, very aggressively. It has huge gold assets. Nobody knows why, but this is also in preparation for creating an alternative 
uh, market economy as an alternate to the IMF. So they have been buying gold. Every time there's a gold dip, they unload some more of their dollars. They buy gold. It's, and that fits right in with China's philosophy, with India's philosophy. This is a solid asset, and it's never going to lose its value. It may fluctuate in the perception of value, but it is a true tangible asset as opposed to a piece of paper that says it's good because we told you it was good, so get out there and spend it. Yeah, I can uh, give you some more. Um, <clears throat> just to compare Russia against the Fed, the United States, <laughs> there's uh, quite, a, quite a contrast here. Uh, to begin with, a basic capital ratio. That's uh, the amount of assets that a bank has as a percentage of its total balance sheet. Now, the Fed, it's sitting at about 1.26%. That's down from 4.5 just a few years ago. Russia, on the other hand, is 12.5%. That's 10x more. As far as gold reserves, that's considered a real asset as you know, part of that first number that I gave you. So gold reserves, now the Fed, they proudly proclaim on their website, oh, we have 0%. We have no gold. We don't own any gold. Whereas Russia, it makes up 6.2%, which is up from 5.5% last year. And then you talk about debt to GDP, gross domestic product. U.S. is at 102% right now. That's uh, considering $18 trillion of debt. Russia, 11%. So they're, they're in a very strong position, Russia is, to, to weather this uh, economic storm that's being generated, uh, who knows who, but the, with the oil price bust and the, the, the ruble dropping seems like this is a good plan by Russia to even have the ruble drop because they can start purchasing their rubles back and getting them off the market. So there's not so many. Oh, yeah. Not only that, that's that's like a double, double, you know, win-win. Number one, they can just say, okay, if you want to buy Russian products, you have to pay in rubles. And if they bought up all the rubles, who, what other country is going to be able to trade with them except those that they choose to sell rubles to? On the other hand, by buying up super cheap rubles with currently facetiously uh, valuable dollars, which will not be after a while, they will flood the foreign exchange market with dollars, and the dollar will rapidly lose its value with all that currency floating, all those dollars floating around the market. It's going to be, you know, that's doom. That's just doom. So super smart move on on Putin's. In fact, I, I have another article here that just says, they're going to let the ruble drop and drop and drop. It's like waiting for you know your your Black Friday sale on their currency, and then they'll just scoop it all up. And on top of this, you have um, Russia's ability to decide that they just don't want to sell gas to Europe uh, and leave them in the cold. Oh yeah. And, and you know, considering all the sanctions and and uh, aggressive behavior, why not? Oh yeah. Um, which uh, harkens back to Paul Craig Roberts recent uh, piece about um, uh, Russia's black swans, all the ways in which it, it can you know, screw over or, or get back at all of these uh, nations that are trying to hurt it. Mm-hmm. And I think one of them was just deciding that it didn't want to pay back debt right away, which would leave the banks in Europe uh, in, a, in an awful position. Yeah. Or they could just say, um, you guys love NATO so much. NATO's been kind of a pain in our butt. So any country who's a member of NATO, we're not going to sell you gas. And perfectly within their capitalist rights to do so. How dare they? How dare they? Absolutely. And, of course, that would be the end of NATO. 
plain and simple. As soon as as soon as folks realize that they can't keep their house warm or cook their food because they're a NATO member, Ukraine's and NATO will not be kicked out fast enough. It's brilliant. Well, I think a lot of these things are going to actually come to pass. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to leave NATO and the U.S. and the EU's head spinning. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Craig, uh, Craig Roberts is calling it for April. Mm-hmm. And he has a marvelous thing. He says, Russia is playing a clever chess game. Diplomacy at its best. Instead of sable rattling, Russia is coin rattling. They don't, I think Putin just has to sit back. And let the U.S. do itself and the Western hegemonic thing do just do themselves in. And it's like it's it's fantastic. It's a judo. It's a keto, whatever you want to call it. That he just has set up and put his country on such a solid foundation that the West just has to trip over their own shoelaces. There have been several commentators on the internet, as usual. Mm-hmm. That's what they do on the internet. <laughs> um, Criticizing Putin for like not going far enough with the economics and and the falling ruble and not kind of making the big changes now. Well, that's that's actually one of the things that that Putin hasn't done. He hasn't totally totally you know restructured the way the Russian economy is is structured. Um, he's still kind of um, sticking with a, a Western-based system. But I just I'd like to point out you know to everyone that. If you if you read the interview that he did recently with uh, with TASS the TASS news agency, it's a pretty long document or interview. He talks about his decision making process. And I think I might have quoted this bit a couple weeks ago, but he basically said that when he makes he doesn't make rash decisions and he consider, considers every possibility when making a decision um, that will have consequences. And so, the, like the way I see it, what seems what he seems to be doing. Is he's he's working within the existing system and the, the the parameters as they exist at the moment, and making he's making these little these little moves here and there to each um, affront from from the West, and some of them work and some of them don't. But it's like before he's before he's going to do anything drastic, he's going to make sure that he's exhausted all the possible options within the existing system. And we've seen that like it, it wasn't until this year with the whole break the whole Ukraine crisis that we started getting a clearer picture from Putin and Lavrov and basically, you know, people all over uh, the Russian government saying that uh, not only um, do they want, you know, relations with the U.S., but on the other hand, um, relations with the U.S. are seemingly impossible because these guys are such idiots. And You're that, not even evil. You're stupid. Yeah, we can't talk to you. That that was one of the big questions, um, you know, over the over Putin's first, you know, two terms was it, and over Medvedev's is the relationship between between Russia and the U.S. And so a lot of the Russian Eurasianist kind of patriots in, in Russia were kind of waiting for for the government to finally you know cut ties with the U.S. and because the U.S. is Russia's biggest enemy. And to to kind of just make that clear, well, that's becoming clear. Gradually. Gradually. Well, Paul Craig Roberts had an interesting comment on that. And he says, surely Russia is not interested to cause the sudden destruction of the dollar-linked financial world. Mm -hmm. She is not interested in a sudden death of many countries that are potential new trading partners in a new monetary system. And this is a practical guy. Mm -hmm. 
Instead, the fall of the Western economic economy of deceit planned as a gradual slide. So, and this is really, really a comment on Putin's character, so that countries have time to switch, to switch their reserves to rubles, yuan, yuan, you say that? the yeah. Chinese character, uh, yeah. uh, currency, yen. No, that's Japanese. No. Anyway, the renminbi is the other one. Okay, so to switch their reserves and other BRICS and uh, SEO, this is the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, which is another huge chunk of countries. This move is on its way. Only 10 years ago, dollar-denominated securities constituted 90% of the reserves worldwide. 90% of countries' reserves were in U.S. dollars, which is why the dollar could remain so strong with the U.S. having such horrible economic you know, foundation. Today, the rate is 60% and is declining. So people are seeing the writing on the wall. The dollar is doomed. And gradually, as they are able, they are moving out of dollars, not fast enough to cause a panic, but they're moving into other currencies, and most likely it is the ruble and definitely the Chinese currencies. Also, another interesting fact is between the BRICS and the SCO countries, they constitute over half the world's population possibly even 60%. That is a lot of buying to be removed from the influence of the U.S., and they're going to feel it. But, you know, I think there's another component that we just touched upon with Putin's strategy, and that is that he's trying to give the world as much time mm-hmm. to realize mm-hmm. uh, the error of, of its ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe not the world so much as the U.S. and, and the Western powers. Um and and he does this and with Lavrov by making these statements again and again and mm-hmm. again. Uh, you know, you think about them going to the the, uh, the Minsk uh, meeting and speaking with Poroshenko, uh, who you know is under the thumb of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and Western powers, and not very bright to boot, and not very bright, and 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 um, you know, corrupt to the to the core. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and it's not just a show of it mm-hmm. either. I mean, there are sincere efforts. To uh, to broker some kind of deal, to you know find the the them encouraging Poroshenko to go through with a new constitution that they say that they they yeah. wanted to write. That's like, come on, let's write it. In in a way, you might almost say he's in in one sense trying to stave off an inevitable disaster mm-hmm. for as long as possible, in in the hopes that enough countries around the world will wake up and take the steps they need to take to preserve themselves. You know, that's probably something that a lot of people cannot wrap their head around, but, but that certainly seems to be what he's trying to do, is that this is going to happen. The U.S., under the weight of its own hubris and and inept to evil policies, will destroy itself. So let's see if we can, can put this off and mitigate as much as we can for the sake of the rest of the world. You know, And he doesn't want to be the bad guy. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. <laughs> And but, before no, the too. and before the U.S. goes into those economic throws, it's going to try and, and incite a war somewhere mm-hmm. in order to cover all that stuff up and mm-hmm. blame. And blame. That's going to be something tragic. Yeah. yeah. So far, he seems to be playing his cards right, and it's not just Putin. I mean, that's the other thing is 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 it's Putin is like the figurehead and the mouthpiece along with Lavrov, but he has a whole collection of really smart, pragmatic advisors and and he is wise enough 
to listen to them. And that's priceless. That's just prizes. priceless. All right. Well, I think that does it for this week. Pretty much talked about everything there is to talk about. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks to our caller, Joe, Anonymous Joe, and uh, William, Carolyn, Ivan. Thank you. And, yeah, we'll see you next week for one to two hours of fun. So take care, everyone, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, folks. Take care.